welcome to week two of our study on uh, the book of Revelation that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. Once again, I'm joined by good friends, David Pfizer and Don Harris. Um, good to be back with you guys this week as we're digging in a little bit more deeply into the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to talk about a couple of different subjects, one that we didn't cover last week that we were hoping to, and that's on the different themes that we can discern throughout the book of Revelation. But first, we're going to look at uh, what we call the literary genre, or genre, if you want to be French about it. Um, we'll look at that, but also issues of authorship and dating uh, of the book. And there's some really interesting historical things going on uh, as we talk about the, 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 even the author of the book, but also the dating of it. And then as time uh, would permit, we'll begin to get into a little bit more of the audience and uh, the provenance of it or where the book was written. But, but as we launch into this today, um, let's talk about the literary genre, guys. What, what is it that when you look at the book of Revelation, what is it that we're reading? What type, type of literature is it? There are a number of... Uh people who will automatically just kind of throw out this massively large label of apocalyptic, mm -hmm. you know, that sounds really smart and intelligent, but it really doesn't tell us a whole lot. Um, primarily because I think a lot of people actually think of apocalyptic as meaning uh, just its opposite rather than, a revelation of something, they see it as being a, a mystery. And so it really doesn't help clarify what we're reading, for one. But I've always been fascinated with and appreciative of the eclectic uh, theme or uh, genre idea that uh, we're looking at apocalyptic, we're looking at prophetic, we're looking at uh, an epistle of sorts, um, a circular one, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of different literary tools being brought to bear by John in this, uh, in this masterpiece, if you will. Yeah, great. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he begins in the book of Revelation, I just had to pull out Mm -hmm. Exactly how he begins it, but apocalypse mm -hmm. he begins. Uh, so, and of course, we translate that into English as revelation. This is right. this is a revelation. It is apocalyptic in nature. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's that's very very interesting. And then, of course, as we get deeper into just even into the first chapter, uh, John writes in verse four. It's John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And so there is that epistolary nature of the book uh, as well. Don, what are your thoughts? My, my first thought is that uh, the different genre, revelation, prophecy, and epistle are all mentioned specifically within the first four verses. So mm -hmm. we've already referred to verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, so to speak. Um, You've also spoken about the epistolary nature of it, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, verse four. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that epistolary nature goes on to the end of the book where it concludes in the same form and fashion as the epistolary literature of the rest of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, and including chapters two and three in between where there are specific messages to these seven churches. But what we see in verse three Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy. Yep. Now, we could also say that, and, and many do, that apocalyptic literature is a specialization within the prophetic genre. And mm -hmm. whether you buy into that or not, uh, there are some who do believe that's the case. But in focusing on prophecy, I think that's what most people fall into when they think of it because they've been taught to look for the clues to the future, mm. uh, what's going to happen. And so that affects their reading and thus their interpretation of the book. So that people are reading the Bible through the newspaper 
rather than the other way. Yeah, good. And and there are, of course, I mean, I think we would agree that there are two ways that we can look at prophetic literature. We can look at it as something telling about the future, or we can look at it as forth telling what it is that we're to be doing now. And and uh, the characteristics of Revelation seem to fit at times in at one area of prophetic literature and at other times in another area, in the other area. Uh, where there's a definite sense that John is writing prophetically to the churches to say, look, this is how you are to be behaving in these times. And so in that sense, it, it is uh, prophetic. And I think the issue of forthtelling is rather critical when we connect the this kind of genre, or at least viewing parts of Revelation in this manner with the whole notion of witness and testimony. You know, we are being told forth or forth told that we're called to bear witness. We're called to stand and and bear testimony to who Jesus is, to his, not just his, his work on the cross, his resurrection, but his reign and glory and that he is coming back. Um, I, I, trying to remember a term that I came across. We're, we're witnessing to the inter-adventic uh, or something like that period, you know, the time between the two advents of Christ. And I think I found that a helpful uh, picture for this, this work of, of prophetic foretelling. There are two other, I don't know if these are genre or not. One of them definitely is, but there's a historical component to this too, isn't there? In the book of Revelation? There's certainly some who take it as a historical document that relates to things that happened in the first first century. Mm-hmm. And that's getting back to what we talked about last week, perhaps in the uh, preterist viewpoint of how to read and interpret the book. But Michael, are you thinking of something else? Uh, why don't you elaborate for me? Yeah. So when I think of a, a piece of historical literature, um, it, it is, I mean, absolutely, Don. Uh, we're writing, John is writing in a particular context, a historical time period. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, Jesus tells John, write in verse 19, chapter one, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And so there's definitely a, a situation here that's somewhat historic. Um, it, it, these are things that John has seen. Uh, they could be future things, but there are some immediate things as well. And particularly as we get into the, the second and third chapter with the seven churches, that John is recounting things that have gone on in the church, and he's he's providing a, a warning, so to speak, to some of the churches, but commending, of course, many of the churches for the things that they've done. Well, it's definitely not an ahistorical document, right? Um, it, it's not like we can just pull Revelation out of the canon and slap it down wherever we want. And sometimes it kind of feels like that's the way it's been treated, at least popularly speaking. However, um, this is kind of a wacky notion that just came to me. But if God and his kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, as it were, uh, is outside of time, which is a creation of God's, then when John is caught up into heaven, brought up into heaven to be a witness to these things and write them down. Uh, in a sense, what he's seeing is not measured by time as we understand time. And I know that kind of opens up a whole can of worms, philosophically speaking. But um, I think that's important for later on when we come to uh, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Uh, that this, you know, John is not necessarily witnessing something that's linear, but something that is outside of our conception of time. I'm sure that both of you are aware that there are some who take that statement to be the key to interpreting the book, that it outlines the structure, right. uh, the, the things that are 
uh, things that, well, you know, past, right. past, present, future. Um, and those people are also connected with an approach to interpretation as well. So mm -hmm. there are some who would love that verse as revealing the structure of revelation. And so they would see it in a linear fashion. So this right. is my, where you where you might have a combination of interpretive options as well as perhaps genre, although mm -hmm. I had not thought about it in those terms. I was just reading prior to this podcast about another literary genre and Michael, sit down, hold on to your seat, buckle in, liturgical. Yes. Oh, no. Okay. So, well, I told you to get ready. But uh, there are liturgical themes throughout with all the different hymns that punctuate the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we say liturgical, we're obviously talking about public worship. And where is the best public worship mm -hmm. that we can possibly imagine going to be held? Well, we see it in Revelation, mm -hmm. uh, in the eschaton, the final days, the culmination of all things, when Christ will be worshiped as he ought to be. So there are some who see revelation through that lens and now whether it was written for that purpose as a liturgical document um, i'm not making that statement but i am saying that it's interesting that it agrees with one of the primary themes that i hope we'll talk about later absolutely 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 we'll talk about that well since we're throwing out after that intro well, I, 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 I want to ask david david is that a golden nugget I'll tell you, I'm I'm sitting here and boom, mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, since we're throwing out golden nuggets of the literary genre of this, I had noted one, and I wasn't going to talk about it because, you know, I I I uh, it's no secret that uh, I think missiologically about everything, mm -hmm. and so there is certainly a missiological genre of literature that we might be able to see. If we can see a liturgical one, uh, we can certainly see a, a missiological one, but we'll get into those as, as far as themes of the book uh, that we can explore. And these are important, these are good things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're not limited necessarily, uh, although the text certainly will limit us in, in the extent to which we could interpret it. Um, but we do yeah, certainly- This map does have boundaries. <laughs> it does have boundaries, yes it does. Well, we move from the literary genre of this eclectic piece of literature being uh, epistolary, prophetic, and apocalyptic to some of the dating and authorship issues. And uh, these present some very interesting, uh, well, for some, present some very interesting challenges. Um, what, what would you view as some of those challenges, guys? Well, we move from the literary genre of this eclectic piece of literature being uh, epistolary, prophetic, and apocalyptic to some of the dating and authorship issues. And uh, these present some very interesting, uh, well, for some, present some very interesting challenges. Um, what, what would you view as some of those challenges, guys? For one, you know, who is this John? We, we don't get the, the clearest of sorts uh, you know, at least from a contemporary sense, there's no credentials that are presented in the way we understand them. However, um, and I'm going to argue for it being the Apostle John or how some traditions refer to him as John the Divine, um, because I do think there are clues within the opening chapter that give us a good sense that he's the best candidate. I mean, for one, uh, John talks about him being his servant, the servant of Jesus Christ, right there in the opening. Um, mm -hmm. That would be a fairly big claim for someone who uh, didn't have that relationship. However, you, you know, there's all sorts of uh, pseudo authorship in that era, um, first, second centuries. but. Um, we also see that if John is being called to write to the seven churches, clearly he must be a person 
of authority, a person who would be known to them. I mean, if this is Joe Blow off the corner, who cares what he has to say? Who's to say that he got this revelation from the Lord? Um, but coming from John the Apostle, John the Divine, would certainly uh, be something for these the, the believers of these seven churches to take note of and to listen to. Yeah, I, I think we all agree, the three of us, that it, the author of this book is John the Apostle. Um, and David, you point out, I think, uh, very clearly uh, the, from the first verse that uh, it, who this John is, he's a servant. I love that the second verse also testifies to that as well. Mm -hmm. He's the one that bore witness to the, the word of God, something that's very familiar to the Apostle John uh, right. as we think of his prologue to his gospel. Then, of course, there are other uh, places as well. Uh, you know, he refers to Jesus in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, quoting Jesus mm -hmm. here. Right. Again, another theme, ego a me, is something that we read in John's gospel uh, mm -hmm. of Jesus referring to himself. So there are all kinds of clues within the text itself uh, that support the idea of this being um, written by John. Don, any thoughts? Well, I have thought and I was taught that it's John the Apostle. And I have to admit that for me to consider that this was John the Elder, whoever he was, is a difficult pill for me to swallow. And I'm not convinced of that. There are some who say that this John the Elder, who was prominent in this region, must have been the author. And they say this for various reasons. But they also cite that the nature of Revelation, that, that it doesn't sound like John. And I would say this, when I read Revelation, it seems to me that it sounds just like John. <laughs> uh, so oh, yeah, I agree. It, it seems that the, the imagery that he uses in the gospel and mm -hmm. the images that he uses in his epistles echo these same things. He's a master of imagery, right. and I think he's well-suited to write apocalyptic from that standpoint. So I stand with you all on this position. Mm -hmm. I do think it's John the Apostle, but I realize that that is not the consensus of so-called scholarly opinion in this time. Yeah, particularly critical scholars. Uh, you know, and this is an interesting issue because it's a historic issue that dates back to the fourth century. Um, mm -hmm. I, as near as I can tell, it, the the consensus among the early church fathers, particularly the anti-Nicene uh, fathers, mm -hmm. have all agreed that it's John the Apostle. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting when we get to the fourth century that there is a theological issue going on between the Eastern Church and the Western Church surrounding the book of Revelation, and namely that the Eastern Church doesn't um, recognize th this idea that was so prominent in the Western Church that became known as Kiliism, uh, um, or the those who believed in the millennial reign of mm -hmm. Christ. And uh, emerging out of that comes... Uh, the father of church history, Eusebius, who uh, writes in uh, 323, 324, his uh, famous uh, book on church history. And in that book, he does not recognize John as the author of Revelation, but it's because he's writing from the Eastern perspective. Um, his thought was that if he gave the Revelation, um, uh, the authorship uh, of John the Apostle, then that would legitimize the Achilleist view that there was going to be a millennial reign of Christ. And so he went to great strides to argue against that and even uh, drawing upon uh, what was believed to be, and in fact, I, I think the evidence is there, a second tomb in the city of Ephesus of another John. Um, and that John became, for Eusebius, the, the author of Revelation, and therefore it became one of the spurious books of the New Testament uh, for mm -hmm. Eusebius. And so that, 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 I mean, even comes into modern scholarship as well, because many will point to there being multiple Johns 
um, endpoint to Eusebius as identifying that uh, there was another John who was the author of, of this book. Yeah, although going into uh, earlier church history, I think it's Irenaeus who is a student of Polycarp who claimed that he had been a disciple of John the Apostle. And so we have that uh, testimony, which is, you know, in my book, that would be primary source, uh, secondary source, not quite a whisper right. name, but uh, for me, quite honestly, that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate you bringing up Eusebius's um, kind of theopolitical concerns with not wanting to give the Western church the ground. Um, and I mean, it, it's a shame, isn't it? That that would be a reason to kind of skirt the issue, so to speak. Um, mm. But it is what it is. We have church politics in our own day, don't we? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, it's so always interesting to read church history because the more you read it, the more you realize as much as we would like to believe that things change, they really don't. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> well, and I, I would go, I, I would mention that whether or not the thousand years are literal or not, it certainly describes and characterizes the reign, the literal reign of Christ as being of long duration, or we could even say, based on the numerology there, that it is kiliastic, that it is stated in terms. Now, whether we understand that literally or whether we understand it as they probably understood it as a very long period of time, it's mm -hmm. there and we have to deal with it. And the fact is that Christ will reign. He will reign victoriously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. And of course, that even in the early church, Prior to Eusebius, there were mixed opinions on what exactly mm -hmm. that thousand years looked like, uh, but we'll get we'll get to that by the time we finish our study. All right, so we we all agree that John is the author. John the Apostle, the disciple of Christ, the beloved disciple of Christ, is the author of Revelation. What about the date? There, you know, it's interesting. I uh, there are four ways to look at the book. You know, you can have John the Elder writing at an early time, John the Elder writing late, John the Apostle writing early, or John the Apostle writing late. So we have these different dynamics potentially going on with the book. But as we've established, John the Apostle is the author. Um, but let's talk a bit about the date for the writing of. Uh, the book of Revelation? Well, do you want to lead off with I'm the waiting for you to... dating? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, the dating issue is an interesting one uh, from a historical mm -hmm. perspective, I suppose. Um, it, it doesn't weigh on the application of the book. Uh, it could weigh on the interpretation of some of the uh, events that we see in the book. But of course, there's the the later date uh, of during the reign of Domitian from 81 to 96 AD, which is mm -hmm. the traditional date for many. I mean, even Irenaeus, uh, David, as you mentioned, he dates it at the time of Domitian. And many in the early church dated at that time as, as well. And then there's a, an argument that can be made for an earlier date uh, prior to the destruction of the temple in, uh, in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Newer scholars uh, hold to that date. Um, I, I, unfortunately, for good or bad, it might, well, I'm not going to put myself in the category of scholar, but I would tend to, to date the book earlier than uh, later. But let's talk about the late date. What, why would you date the book late? Well, I'm just thinking in terms of there's no empire-wide persecution going on. Some people will kind of, at least those who aren't necessarily all that familiar with the history on the ground, uh, will make these arguments. Oh, it was an empire-wide persecution of Christians. That's what makes Revelation so incredible. But it really wasn't. I mean, it, it did not come from Rome. Uh, rather, what I have read over time and uh, came across as I was preparing, you know, refreshing myself for our uh, time together today 
is that you had local leaderships in these seven cities, seven major cities of Asia Minor, who were uh, trying to gain uh, political clout with the emperor and so instituted this emperor worship, which was nothing new, uh, had been going on for, for decades. But, you know, since you have Domitian, who is uh, now on the throne, they wanted to get in sweet with him and therefore uh, forced local Christians to have to capitulate to compromise their, their credo that Christ is king. Um, the other little clue, it, it almost doesn't seem like a big one, except the earthquake that had uh, rocked, what is it, Laodicea, um, had happened a, a bit earlier. And so when we're reading uh, about Jesus's remarks to Laodicea, they've rebuilt by then. They've, they've, they clearly are dependent upon themselves. You know, Laodicea didn't even require a bailout, an economic bailout from Rome when it was offered. They, they had plenty of wealth to take care of the rebuilding project themselves. So that, that was just another uh, point in my mind that pushes for a later date rather than an earlier date. Good. Good. Yeah. Don, anything to add? Uh, something to add is that this was the position of Irenaeus, and he wrote concerning the book. I'm I'm reading from a text now. This is his quotation, uh, speaking with respect to the writing of Revelation. Uh, that was seen no very long since, but almost in our own day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. So that's a quotation from Irenaeus, uh, his book on heresies. Um, so Irenaeus, I believe is a reliable source. I don't know that he had an ax to grind and I, I don't mean that to be funny. Um, but, and it's also known that there was persecution under Domitian. And I don't know why people get hung up on why was this an empire wide edict? And it was, mm -hmm. uh, that I, I think that's a non-argument. I don't think that's a condition of dating. Right. Uh, so I, I don't see a reason not to go with the late date, but I do know that you have some reasons of your own that affect interpretation. And I think those are the arguments that are interesting and we would love to hear them again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me see if I can lay them out here. You know, it's, it's a funny thing because I love Irenaeus. And uh, I appreciate so much what he wrote. And uh, that, like you, I, I think he's a very reliable source. Um, he's only uh, four generations away from Jesus, uh, mm -hmm. three generations away from Paul um, and John, who writes this. And of course, as you mentioned, a disciple of, of Polycarp, or at least he was a listener of Polycarp. Um, some have wondered exactly what that means, uh, if he just heard him speak or if he actually was sitting at the, the teaching, under the teaching of Polycarp. But, but uh, whatever the case, and of course, he records uh, much of uh, what we know about uh, uh, Papias as well, another contemporary with Polycarp and a disciple of John. Um, and so there's every reason to believe that Irenaeus is a reliable source. But as I think about the dating here, um, it, one of the things that troubled me in, in uh, trying to be a little bit more precise about the dating is the life expectancy of people of the first century. If, if John the Apostle were, in fact, the author of the epistle, he would have been in his, in his late 70s, early 80, 80s which puts him well past the life expectancy, was, which was somewhere in the 50s um, uh, in the first century. And so that's a little troublesome for me to, to think that. And it's not that he couldn't. I mean, obviously he could. Um, some believe that he was going to live until Jesus returned. Um, and uh, so he could have very well lived to 80. And it's not to say that you know, people couldn't lived that long, but the life expectancy just wasn't that old uh, in the first century. But besides that, 
I think there are some other things that um, are curious as well to me. Um, Thomas Slater in his commentary on uh, Revelation suggests that the, the um, discussion uh, in chapter Revelation chapter 11 about the temple suggests that the temple actually still existed um, because John is told to go measure a temple. And Slater takes this as uh, uh, measuring the actual temple in Jerusalem. And so according to him, he would suggest that it must be before uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, that would be one, one reason why we might want to consider an earlier date. Um, I, I think, too, the um, reference in Revelation 13 to uh, the 666, along with the first century myth that Nero would be resurrected. This was a, a myth not created by Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a, a Roman myth, a popular myth, that Nero would come back to life. And uh, many, as they look at the latter part, uh, or look into Romans chapter 14, are suggesting that this, this ruler who was and now is, is the resurrected uh, Nero. And that myth started shortly after his suicide in 68 AD. And so that, that, that situation, that scene, if you will, in Revelation 13 and 14 seems to fit with uh, that early myth um, that might not have been as prominent at, at later on in the writing of, of, uh, of Revelation, if it were dated later. Um, in regards to the persecution, um, I think that has to factor into this as well, because remember, uh, 67 AD, uh, that you have Peter and Paul uh, martyred, along with many others, uh, at the hands of Nero. Uh, 64, you have Nero blaming the Christians for uh, the, the, the great fire in Rome. Uh, prior to that, you have the expulsion of the Jews from uh, Rome. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's where we meet uh, Aquila and Priscilla in Act, uh, Acts chapter 18. So persecution was happening even at this time period. Um, and I would suggest that it was happening at a far greater rate than what we might imagine or what, what we've been taught. Um, mm -hmm. Paul makes reference, for example, of additional imprisonments that aren't necessarily recorded in Scripture. Um, I've suggested elsewhere that Paul was actually in prison in the city of Ephesus um, at, during his ministry there, those three years in the early 50s. And then, of course, we have uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 making reference to the, the fight with the wild beast in Ephesus. And so there's certainly an indication that the times were not easy times, but there was persecution that was going on. Um, and, and so uh, for those reasons, it seems to me that it's not, at least it's not outside of the realm of possibility that Revelation could be dated earlier than, uh, than 81 to 96 during Domitian's reign. And then recent scholarship is also suggesting that the persecution under Domitian wasn't as severe um, as what people have been led to believe. Um, um, and so uh, all of those things, at least in my mind, are adding up to the possibility of an earlier date for the writing of, of Revelation. Well, that's a mouthful, and that's a <laughs> lot to think about. Uh, and, and it shows that, that you have thought about it a great deal. Uh, now, what you did not mention is how this infect uh, how this not infects but affects interpretation. It, it might infect it. Uh, that that could be something that we can uh, that someone might think about uh, how the early date impacts the interpretation. Um, and, and so yeah, so I think that both if we date it late or if we date it early, uh, what however we date it is going to impact a little bit about how we read things going on in in the Book of Revelation. Um, it, the interesting thing is, though, and I think the important thing, is that it does not have to impact the application of the book of Revelation. And I, I think that's important uh, to keep in mind as we move forward uh, in, mm -hmm. in our study of Revelation. Because I, the three of us agree pretty much 
on the application of the book, although we might disagree on the date of the book. So for me, when I date um, Revelation early, and then I take into consideration uh, the historical context, uh, the, the churches that John is writing to, it seems to me that the focus of Revelation is in Asia Minor, not the entire Roman Empire, but specifically uh, regarding issues occurring in Asia Minor. And so as, for example, when we get into Revelation 13 and the, the, the uh, John's uh, discussion of the beast with seven heads, um, that could very well be not Roman emperors, but either rulers of Asia Minor, as John is addressing uh, the letter to seven churches. And so those seven heads could, in fact, refer to uh, the seven rulers in those seven cities. It could refer to uh, the worship going on in those seven cities, because we know at this time period, Artemis, um, who could actually be uh, the, the woman uh, on the beast or in some way affiliated or associated with the beast, the worship of Artemis is at its height in uh, the first century. And so her uh, renown is great in uh, Asia Minor. Uh, temples are being built all over, the, all over Asia Minor to the goddess uh, Artemis. And we know how prominent she was in the city of Ephesus. Uh, but there are others, of course, that are being worshipped as well. And so, and so I think we agree that a, a, a big part of uh, Revelation in terms of what John is trying to address is to call Christians away from uh, the worship of other things and the single allegiance to Christ himself. So um, that could fit with with uh, an early date uh, as well. And that's not to say that emperor worship wasn't an issue. It, it certainly was. And we can very easily make an argument for um, the first century church, the churches in Asia Minor, taking uh, Peter's admonition, for example, to honor emperors and Paul's to submit to the authority of emperors in Romans 13, uh, Peter's reference in 1 Peter 5. Um, it, that it could be that that's just gone way too far uh, from where Peter and Paul had intended uh, our uh, submission to uh, political authorities uh, uh, should go. And so John could be calling the churches back to allegiance to Christ uh, and not overly worshiping uh, or honoring or submitting to uh, those political authorities. Anyway, so a, a lot to think about in terms of dating and, and some of the images that we meet uh, throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we could enumerate several things that we agree on. Uh, one, there was persecution that was intense, uh, both early and late. Again, whether it was empire-wide, for me, that's not the question. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I would think of uh, saying in this context is that the nature, I, our nature as human being is towards accommodation or compromise. And right. so that was evidently a factor as we read the messages to the seven churches. Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to address specifically that... Uh, Revelation 11, 1 and 2, which you referred to earlier, uh, when it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they mm -hmm. will trample the holy city for 42 months. Uh, what strikes me about that reference is that in a book that is apocalyptic and full of imagery, uh, we move to a literal interpretation. And so that seems mm -hmm. a bit inconsistent in approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, I'm not trying to really argue one way or the another. I'm just saying that I think a case might be made for either position, but 
I don't want to fall on the sword here. I think there's also um, some Old Testament influence here because Ezekiel is called to uh, measure the the temple as well in, in his vision from the Lord. Um, now what that means for dating, I, I don't know, but I think it, it does in a sense help explain why is John being called to do this? Because there's so many echoes and allusions that go back to Daniel and, and Ezekiel, uh, in different places here. And of course, uh, in those two books, we're talking symbolism galore and not literal, uh, you know, it's not a literal statue that Daniel sees, uh, but it stands for those, those kingdoms that will be brought down low by the Lord. Good. Well, we move from uh, literary genre, uh, authorship and dating of the book. Uh, should we talk just to, uh, briefly about the provenance of the book, where, from where was it written? Where's that verse that tells us exactly where it was written? <laughs> yeah. Revelation yeah. 1, 9 and 10. Uh, yeah, chapter 23. Um. <laughs> yeah, so, so Revelation 1, 9 and 10, John uh, writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos, mm -hmm. on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, and then he gets specific, and I love this about uh, talking about from where the book was written, because, I mean, it's clear, it's the island of Patmos, there's no argument there from any scholar. Uh, and then verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so uh, we even get a little bit more specific on when um, when John wrote that. How would you look at the Lord's Day? Is he talking about Saturday or Sunday? Well, definitely. Uh, yeah, here I am speaking so authoritatively. <laughs> um, but I would take it from him saying the Lord's Day that he is speaking about Sunday. Hmm. Yeah. I would as well. Yeah, so from the island of Patmos, uh, on a Sunday, he is writing uh, the, the book of Revelation to, of course, the audience of, uh, comprised of the seven churches. Uh, I agree that verse 9 is saying this is what he saw and when he saw it. I don't believe that this is pinpointing when he wrote it. I think he well could have been. Uh, out of exile and not on the island of Patmos when he wrote. So I, I would just say, yes, I, I believe these details are true, but I think that's talking about when it happened, but he could have written about it after he had the vision, not as he was having the vision. Mm. Okay. Does, yeah. You understand my point? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that we we juggled those. Um, it, I mean, this notion here with other passages that we'll get to uh, at some point when when the angel comes to to John and says, "Now write." Uh, and so, is he writing at the moment, or is he writing sometime uh, later? But yeah, it, it, certainly um, he could have written this over a period of time. Um, Boy, it'd be pretty wild to think that all in all on a Sunday, uh, he got this complete vision. But he might have—I mean, he could very well have. Uh, we just don't have a clear indication of that. Right. Well, in a, in a further context that I think helps us appreciate the the glory that this vision reveals is, you know, if he is, for all intents and purposes, imprisoned on Patmos. Uh, this being the Lord's day and he receives this vision, it's very likely that he is in the midst of worshiping God, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in the context of his worship that he receives that vision, which to me speaks to God's validating John's call, you know, mm -hmm. a, a continued validation. 
you are still my servant. All right. Oh, you know what? I forgot. I had another nugget, Don. I'm not going to steal the golden one that you had, but uh, this just comes to me. It comes to mind. <laughs> this comes to mind as as we're thinking about Patmos. It's interesting. Uh, the first commentary written on the Book of Revelation, at least that we know about, was written in 260 A.D. by uh, a bishop uh, named Victorinus. And when he writes about the authorship of the book, he agrees that it's the Apostle John. Um, and he says that he is in a mining camp hmm. on the island of Patmos. That was his exile, that he was enslaved in a mining camp. And that was another reason, as I think about the dating, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a, a 70 or 80 year old first century uh, saint in a mining camp. camp uh, actually having the the uh, physical capacity to do that type of hard labor. Um, so, but anyway, so that that kind of impacted my thinking along uh, the term, uh, the along the idea of an early date for the book. It was no club. Um, it was not a club med. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so we've talked about the genre. We've talked about authorship and the date. Uh, we've talked about uh, the provenance of the book uh, briefly about the audience that we'll touch on in much more detail next week. But themes of Revelation, there are several themes that emerge as we read through this book. And I thought we'd just take a, a few minutes to touch on a, a few of these. And of course, we'll revisit these as we continue through the book of Revelation. But five of them uh, stuck out to me. And I know you guys have thought some about this as well. But um, one of those themes that that sticks out to me is the theocentric nature of the book of Revelation. It, it just seems to me as you read from beginning to end that this is really the story about God and what he is about to do. Um, and it gives us just this incredible description of who he is in his completeness, in his Trinitarianness, if you will. Because we have a picture, of course, of, of uh, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all throughout uh, the, the book of Revelation. So it just, uh, it just seems to me to have that theocentric uh, uh, emphasis in it. Yeah, and I think even drilling deeper down into that, we have this theme of the sovereignty of God over all things. Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, it's the fleshing out, if you will, of uh, Paul's words in Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So even these terrible things that these believers are experiencing, as we'll talk about uh, when we discuss the seven churches, uh, those things are put into the context of the greater cosmic plan of God and put in if you will, to kind of the historical uh, telling of God's story, his story. The history of the world is really his story. And we're bit players only on the stage for a few moments here and there. But um, I don't think we can come away from reading Revelation and not be almost overwhelmed with God's sovereignty as well as his presence. The second theme that I see in the book of Revelation is a Christological one. Um, as we meet Jesus in John chapter one, and we'll discuss this a little bit more in, a, in the next couple of weeks, but we have this incredible description of who Jesus is, and we see him in action all throughout the book um, in, in a number of different inst instances. And so there's definitely this Christological theme. I, I like to say that we see Jesus as he truly is. Um, as I think about the book of Revelation and the description that John gives us of who Jesus is, it just seems to me that, you know, when we are translated from this life to the next, that this is the Jesus that we're going to meet. Um, at some, some point, we'll stand face to face with this awesome uh, Christ that that John is uh, so descriptive of. This theme uh, coincides with the previous one mentioned, the theocentric. Mm -hmm. uh, 
we only see God as we see him through Christ. I mm -hmm. think that's mm -hmm. true. Um, now, perhaps I've misspoken, but uh, we, when we see Christ as he is, we truly see God as he is. You know, no one has seen mm -hmm. God at any time, but uh, despite the fact that some people have had difficulty, uh, people in years gone by have had difficulty seeing Christ here, it seems quite evident that this book is all about Christ, and it's about the worship of Christ and of God as he truly is. So I think these two things go together and complement each other very well. And just a note that these themes... It's not as though you get to one place in the book and it says, now we're going to discuss this theme. But these themes overlap and they are uh, circles that uh, you might say concentric circles that we come back and forth out of focus between scenes on earth and scenes mm -hmm. in heaven. Uh, but we begin to see Christ more clearly. And as we see Christ more clearly, we see God. But as we uh, observe these things, then our situation on earth becomes more clear as well. So a theocentric theme, a Christological theme, there's an ecclesiological theme as well, as we see that, um, as we'll get into next week in chapters two and three, there is some prescription here for the church, that the church is to be and to do certain things. The church is, all seven of them, uh, are receiving a call to essentially be the church. And I don't want to go into too much detail on that because that's what we'll talk about next week. But um, five of them receive admonishment. All of them receive promise. Two of them receive uh, very encouraging words, but they are all spoken from Jesus to the church. The churches are to uh, conform to the head, conform to Christ, who is the head of the church. And I think that is so absolutely critical. And it makes my mind race way ahead to the whole application notion that, you know, we, at least in our context in North America and the United States, it, it, it's almost like is Christ the head of our church or is the church in our country today uh, something more akin to a hydra? Uh, so many heads and you cut one off and two more grow in its place. Um, it's, it's a crazy time for our church in this context, but there clearly Christ is the one who is delivering the prescription. Christ is the one who is dictating the terms of what it means to be his church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Now, now, at this point, I want to overlay part of our previous discussion on this particular theme, and that is um, the epistolary nature mm -hmm. of the book. So here he is writing seven messages to the seven churches, and these are not, uh, I mean, these are literal churches that existed at this time in archaeological digs have been done in each place. So these were real places, real people, and therefore, I think, very instructive for how we should receive the message. Mm -hmm. um, ecclesiological, basically, ecclesiology is the uh, Greek word for church. Um, and so this is about the church and about how the church and the people in the church are to behave. And yes, local congregations, as well as we could say the church universal. Uh, and so what he is doing here is writing and encouraging and exhorting them to live like the people they are. And they can do that without fear, even if it comes to martyrdom. But Christ mm -hmm. is ultimately uh, the victor. And there we have the Christus victor theme. Mm -hmm. uh, so we see them overlapping, interweaving, uh, but and then it leads us into, I know, the fifth thing that we'll talk about, but we'll wait for that. But just to say, let's not forget that these were real churches, and therefore it can speak just as well to our situation as well.
So another thing that I see in this book is a sociological one. And uh, as Don and David both said that, you know, these are written to the churches that are going through particular issues, social issues. And we'll see this all throughout the book of Revelation that John is directing the church in times of political, economic and societal turmoil and giving the church clear instructions to continue to be faithful witnesses during these uh, difficult um, sociological uh, times, if you will. Um, another theme, uh, too, and I have one other that comes to mind that we need to go back to, to, uh, to this, to add perhaps to the ecclesiological one. But let me conclude with this one. And then, Don, I know that you see a, a particularly important theme as well here, but uh, is missiological. Again, I, it's no secret, I see mission everywhere I go. And uh, that's certainly apparent here as it, we see it repeated several times the emphasis on the, the many people who are coming to worship God, um, the nations, the tribes, the languages, the people, and the authorities all throughout. Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9, 10, 11, 14, 6, 15, 4, all repeat the same beautiful theme mm -hmm. that uh, there's a call to mission to see more and more people uh, worship God. I think that probably coincides, Don, to some level with uh, the theme that you see. That's correct. I, but I do want to go back to the fourth theme that we see here, sociological, that you just mentioned. And that is, um, this is in the context of emperor worship, or what was the civil religion of the day. Right. And so it is so relevant for us today when civil religion here in the West, in America, is so prominent. Mm -hmm. And perhaps I can go so far as to say that if everyone's an evangelical, then no one's an evangelical. Mm -hmm. uh, and this day, you know, it used to be everyone was a Christian. Now it seems uh, so many people are climbing on this bandwagon. But nevertheless, in the day and age in which we live and what we've been through politically and socially, in the last year shows that this is so important to us not to miss this theme, that just as the Christians of that day were actually forced into a situation of civil religion, that is the worship of the emperor, whether it was early or whether it was late, we are accommodating in our day to this notion that uh, to be patriotic and to be American and to be conservative is the same thing as being a Christian. And mm -hmm. we definitely don't want to make that mistake. Now, there might be some overlap, but let's not confuse that with being synonymous. Right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I just want to agree with the missiological theme because I, too, am a career missionary. I think missions. I, I trust that I live that way as well. But the other thing that I want to introduce is the doxological theme. And I think we see this echoed in so many of the themes that we've talked about already. Theocentrism, um, Christology, the church with ecclesiology, uh, and then with missions. Uh, this is a viewpoint that I just can't get a away from. And there are so many people who think that worship is the primary theme of Revelation. Uh, in fact, um, one person has said that, uh, that it is the primary theme that ties all the others together. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but I would like to save those for uh, as we go through the book, because there's too much to be said about it at this time. But mm -hmm. maybe just a, uh, a few references. Uh, one person has said that the worship scenes take the reader into the very presence of God. So there we have the theocentrism and lift them above events to the almighty Lord. And I think we've often heard, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. We might reverse that statement and say, don't be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. Mm -hmm. You know, there this theme of worship somehow 
transcends uh, earthly life. Mm-hmm. Um, the the proper worship of God is the central theme of the book. That's uh, uh, by an author named Barr, and there's this sense that the conflict uh, in the book of Revelation, the the nexus, the the central conflict is: Will you worship God as He ought to be worshipped, or will you accommodate yourself and compromise and worship the emperor? Right. And, I mean, and that's very appropriate. I mean, <laughs> if if we have Revelation at one end, we have Genesis at the other, and and wasn't that kind of the the key issue in Genesis three? Is God really as good as He says He is? Mm-hmm. You know, why why is He giving you everything but these things? If God was really so good, you could eat anything you wanted, right? Um, and and in a sense. That is the the satanic counterfeit that we see tempting the churches in these seven cities, right? Oh, you can sacrifice to the emperor and still be a Christian. You can lay with Jezebel. You can follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And then here comes Jesus saying, no, no, you can't. Yeah. And it's not just a doctrinal issue. Jesus isn't saying, you know, you have to believe the right things or else. It's, I'm the only one who's worthy of worship. I'm the one who was and is and will come again. Yeah. And and doesn't that give us a beautiful picture of another theme that I think emerges out of the study of Revelation? And that's Jesus as a shepherd. There's a real shepherd theme Mm -hmm. here. Uh, a pastoral theme, if you will, um, mm-hmm. that we see particularly in chapters two and three, but really in John's heart all throughout uh, the, the the letter, he's he's reminding constantly the churches to remember uh, to, to be a faithful witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so much of what makes the book so beautiful. When when you begin to see these themes overlapping and interweaving, you realize that. Uh, Jesus was heaven come to earth, so to speak, but Mm -hmm. worship transcends even our earthly lives and basically exalts us to the place where we can worship God. So I I think this is just a beautiful, beautiful book. And I think it's largely been missed because we've been looking for other things and Mm. for the most part, things that aren't there. You mean like the Apache attack helicopters that are locusts that aren't there? Uh, we've been yeah, looking? there's something else uh, in there too. I'm sure it had to do with Abraham tanks and uh, you know destruction and flamethrowers and everything right. else. Not to mention who's going to have lunch with the Antichrist on day 666. <laughs> you know, to to kind of bring this down to ground level, I'm reminded. Uh, Michael Horton, in his uh, awesome systematic theology, The Christian Faith, talks about four coordinates, um, drama, uh, doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. Right. You know, we, we read of the drama, we articulate the doctrine that we see there, and it leads to our, our worshiping God, our doxology. Uh, and, and it fine tunes our discipleship, you know, and so in the same way that we see these concentric circles, this hermeneutical circle, if you will, as we'll find reading in through Revelation, I think all these things are, are concentric circles that we continually come back to and uh, fine tune our discipleship, our following Jesus so that we can be better worshipers of him so that we can represent him better to the nations. Um, and, and as you said, Michael, all these things are, are very tied, very much tied together, or, or Don said that as well. Um, you know, we, we can kind of theoretically separate them, but they're so intermeshed with one another in this, in this letter, this book, um, that we want to be cautious about separating them too far even for just our our own kind of intellectual quest of sorts, 
Um, because I think that is the problem of modernism, that we separate these things out so far that we hone in on the one that we like the most, and then we end up letting that be the lens through which we read it, and we miss everything else. And I think that is one of the great problems of people who buy into particular schools, whether it's the preterist or the futurist or, or the historist, you know. And again, that's one reason why I like the eclectic school of thought that, you know, we want to try and find the best of those other readings and avoid the mistakes that they've made. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, wow. There, um, there were some prophets back in the 70s who spoke. Mm. Uh, their last names were Crosby, Stills, Nash, Taylor, and Reeves. And they sang a song about getting back to the garden. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think that is a great theme or a great summary of the book of Revelation. Uh, regardless of what mm. happens in between, whether we see it uh, historically by what we read in the newspaper, which I highly doubt, but ultimately, we're going to get back to the garden in fellowship with God in the mm. new heaven and the new earth. Sure. And we have a picture of that garden. So I just want to thank uh, those prophets from the 70s for alerting me to that. Um, even before I was a believer. Nice. Well, those are, uh, I mean, that is a worshipful image, right? I mean, the Garden of Eden was, in a sense, the, the temple of God for its day. Yeah. It is where God came and met with man. And the, the worship was not so drawn out and detailed as it gets in the Old Testament and all, but it didn't need to be. Yeah. Uh, there, it, was, it was the way... It was supposed to be seeing God face to face, talking with him in the cool of the day. And you're right, Don, we, we get all the way to the other end of Revelation and we're in a new garden uh, that you almost can't tell the difference where, where the garden ends and the city begins or where the city ends and the garden begins. But we don't need a temple again. We don't have all these rules for worship. We're there with God. The God it gets me excited and fired up. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean this will preach, won't it? It does. <laughs> It'll preach. Yeah, and and to think that with Revelation we've tried to get so many th things out of it that aren't there, and these are the things that we've left on the table when we could have satisfied ourselves with these things, but instead mm -hmm. we've gone away hungry with speculation. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we've gone off in bad directions. Yeah. Yeah, thank God for this wonderful book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen, amen. Hey guys, that's a great place for us to pause and uh, and uh, pick this up on our next uh, time together. Next mm -hmm. week we'll get into Revelation chapter two and three and talk about the seven churches and some of the cultural issues they were going through, as well as talk about uh, Jesus's prescription for the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, and perhaps even suggest that uh, this is a good assessment strategy for our churches uh, today. <laughs> so, well, for uh, David and Don and myself, uh, we're so grateful that you're joining us on this study of Revelation and looking forward to doing theology and community with you as we continue through discovering Jesus in this beautiful book. Mm -hmm.